Hi, this is Paul Sachs, Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and with me today is Seth Mnookin. Seth is an Assistant Professor at MIT, and he's also an Associate Director of the Graduate Program in Science Writing there. In 2011, he wrote a book called The Panic Virus, which covered the vaccine autism controversy. And with the recent rise in measles cases in the United States, I thought it would be interesting for us to talk with him today. And I want to say at the outset that Seth is not a physician. He's not a vaccine scientist. He certainly doesn't work for the pharmaceutical companies. And so his perspective on this was really very refreshing. So Seth, why don't you tell us how you got the idea to write the book? Sure. Uh, not long after my wife and I got married and we moved from Manhattan down to Brooklyn and found ourselves doing more adult things like going to dinner parties. And despite the fact that we were not parents at the time and were not expectant parents at the time, we both noticed that there was this one topic of conversation that kept coming up, and that was uh, the issue of vaccine safety and, and efficacy. And so when I started to ask my friends how it was that they were going about making these fundamental decisions about their children's health, I was surprised by the answers, which were not, we were talking to our doctors, or this is the result of long and reasoned analysis, but really a lot of people saying that essentially they were going with their gut. They felt that kids were getting too many vaccines too early in life, or it just didn't seem like we needed to vaccinate against all these diseases, given that most of them haven't been around in a major way for a long time. But I was really fascinated by the fact that they were relying on their instinct. And so that became the question that set this whole thing in motion. It's possible that some of my friends have the same opinion, but because I'm an ID specialist and my wife's a pediatrician, they're afraid to share them with me. Right, right. <laughs> Could it be that they were reflecting their own lack of scientific education, or did you see it across the board in your friends? I actually was really fascinated that because I even saw it in some people who, who were actually engineers and scientists. But I think you've hit on one of the reasons why it fascinated me so much. I, I knew, obviously, that there are people who make decisions about issues of science based on something other than scientific fact. You know, we see it with climate change all the time. We see it with evolution. But I had assumed in what I think was probably a fairly prejudicial way that those were not people that I knew. You know, these were people who lived somewhere in between New York and California and were not my peers, were not lawyers and teachers and programmers. And what I realized with this issue is that, in fact, we all make decisions based on emotion all the time. And people who make decisions about scientific issues based on emotion are not limited to one political party or another or one socioeconomic group or anything else. Very interesting. Did you have any prior beliefs on this vaccine safety issue before you started your book? No, I, I started working on it it's probably in 2008. So the debate about vaccines had already been going on for a while. But I guess because I, I didn't have kids, it was something that I was pretty unaware of. And vaccines were something that I remember hating uh, and I remember thinking of as totally necessary. It had never occurred to me that you might not vaccinate your child. And that was part of what was so fascinating. But I have to say, as someone who had at that point, I guess, spent 15 or so years as a journalist, 
I looked at the two competing storylines, one of which was there's this worldwide conspiracy that the government and big business are engaged in, and the result is that kids are being harmed, and the other is that essentially the government and big pharmaceutical companies are all doing what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> the former made a much more interesting and exciting story. Yeah, um, yeah. But it just obviously didn't end up being true. And during the process of researching the various positions, because one of the things I like about your book is you try to give both sides a voice. Right. What were the key insights to both sides that you saw, in particular, about the strengths of their arguments or the things that they use to convince people? One of the things I noticed right off the bat, and this was before I kind of spent almost a year just learning the science and, and reading all the research, was that when this subject came up and was covered on TV, or when you had an NIH official or a CDC official making a statement, um, and then you had a parent, it almost seemed to me like they were talking in two different languages. <laughs> that is actually a real problem. I think that even though science and English use the same words, <laughs> they don't mean the same thing. And so hmm. the general public has no real understanding of what a null hypothesis is or why you can't definitively prove something. You can only show something not to be true. So when a doctor or Harvey Feinberg would be on TV and say, well, based on all of the evidence that we have, we're reasonably confident that there's no concern that vaccines cause autism that we know of at this point, et cetera. In science, that means, yeah, we're really sure about this. But in English, that means, yeah, we have no idea what we're talking about. And we're about to find out that actually we've been doing something horribly wrong. That's an excellent point. One thing I find very interesting is the cautious language of scientists can come across as being very wishy-washy to the lay public. Exactly. And then the other extreme is the really dramatic use of anecdote and very weak association to prove the point in a really emotional way on the other side. Yes, yes. A great example of this is when Jenny McCarthy was on Larry King's show and she was talking about her child and she said, the story that I have about my child is science. And a point that I try to stress is that actually the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> and the fact that there's a story to be told about something does, does not make it true. And by contrast... The older generations do have the stories of polio and of measles and of all the vaccine-preventable illnesses when we didn't have the vaccines, and they use those stories to, to really appreciate the vaccines. It's a great point. For my generation of parents, the diseases that vaccines prevent against getting are these entirely notional concerns. I've never known someone who was in an iron lung. None of my peers were made sterile by mumps or, or blinded by measles. And so you contrast that with autism, which seems to be everywhere. There's a whole other discussion to be had about whether autism rates are actually going up, but certainly awareness of it is going up. So you have, on the one hand, this intervention that's meant to protect against diseases that because that intervention has been so effective, we don't really see anymore. And on the other hand, what feels like this much more present and, and real concern that is out there all the time. To just place my generation in context, especially my wife's uh, experience, is the vaccines that prevent against 
H-flu invasive disease, meningitis. Right. So you probably don't have any friends who have kids with bacterial meningitis either because right. that is virtually gone. It's happened since we left medical school. Right, yeah. So, so you write this book and it got quite a bit of attention. And I was just wondering whether you at any point felt at all insecure about your safety or that you were going to be the, the source of attacks. You know, what was the public response and what was the the press response? For the most part, what I've had to deal with has just been on the scale of hate mail, which can be painful and hurtful, but is not something that causes me to worry about my physical safety or my family's. There have been a couple of instances where I've gotten an email or, or a letter and I've gone to talk to authorities and so now actually know what kinds of death threats they take seriously. <laughs> um, and uh, apparently like you deserve to die or you're going to pay with your life for this or something like that is not what makes uh, the police nervous. What makes them nervous is when someone gets a letter um, that specifies the way in which someone should die. Um, I guess that shows that the writer has actually given thought to the specifics about this and that's when they start to to get really concerned. Well, you've definitely educated me about something that yeah, um, right, I didn't know right. about before this. So uh, clearly, in some ways, both of us in this are, are preaching to the choir. This is about as receptive an audience for vaccines' importance in personal and public health as you could have. Right. People who are already convinced on the danger of vaccines, who are almost delusional, it might be very hard to reach them. But there might be some people who are indecisive about it. Right. Maybe kind of like your friends in Brooklyn who were considering it. That's the group I think we have the best chance with. I would 100% agree with you. I think another interesting thing about this issue, and this is not answering your question, but I will get to that, is that it's one of these issues where a really minuscule minority has been able to command an overwhelming amount of oxygen surrounding the issue. If you look at the country as a whole, vaccine uptake rates are still above 90%. And when I talk to parent groups, when I talk to parents and ask them what they would guess if they had to guess the percent of people, of parents who are vaccinating their children, their guesses are along the lines of like 60 or 70 percent. And I think that's indicative of the type of coverage that's out there. And then if you look at the under 10 percent that is not vaccinating, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of that that are really the kind of rabid anti-vaccine activists as opposed to parents who have some uncertainty or have some anxiety and maybe have a doctor that doesn't engage with them or whatever the situation may be. It's agreeing with what you said. I don't think that there's a great chance of reaching that very, very small percent that are really hardcore activists. But I also think that if we never reached any of those people, it would not have any effect on, on the health of the country as a whole. I got the chance to interview this person who discovered the measles vaccine, one of the discoverers, Sam Katz, and he he made the same point. He said, we right now have a a relatively small number of parents in this country who are choosing not to vaccinate, and and let's keep it that way. So he basically, he he thinks a lot of it is just media hype. However... (laughs) Although, yeah, one of the things that's so scary about measles is that because it's the most infectious microbe known to humans, you can have a really small number of unvaccinated people that cause a pretty considerable 
problem for public health efforts. After a 2008 outbreak in San Diego, there was a study about the the public health implications of that. And what they found was that containing each individual infection cost over $10,000 for public health. That doesn't take into account lost wages on the part of parents who had to stay home with their quarantine children or, or anything else. So I think that both things can be true at the same time. This can be something that affects a, a pretty small percent of the population. And also because we have clusters of people who are choosing not to vaccinate and because measles is so infectious, it can also be a real public health concern. I'll jump back and try and really briefly address your previous question, which is how do we reach the rest of the vaccine skeptical people or just the people who don't know what to think. There is not a lot of good research that has been done on the most effective way to reach parents who are concerned about vaccines for X as opposed to Y reason or research into how parents make these decisions. You know, are they making them because of social media or because of peer interactions? A couple of Years ago, I helped organize, along with Barry Bloom from the Harvard School of Public Health and Ed Marcuse from University of Washington, a workshop at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences that put together a research agenda that could answer those questions. Essentially, how do parents make these decisions, and once they've made them, what's the best way to interact with them? There are a number of, of researchers around the country who are doing really excellent work in that regard. Related to the measles outbreak, I'm wondering whether you think there have been any changes in the public's perceptions of vaccines since that has happened in the last year, and if so, what have those changes been? Even going back before the measles outbreak, most of your listeners are going to be aware of the infamous Lancet paper in 1998 that started a lot of the concern about the MMR vaccine. Since 2010 and 2011, and those were the years that the paper was retracted and that the lead author of the paper, Andrew Wakefield, uh, had his medical license revoked. Since then, I think there's been a really pretty dramatic shift in the way that the media has covered this story. For a long time, you had this, on the one hand, on the other hand, coverage, which just drives me up a wall. (laughs) Well, you got to give equal weight to everybody, right? (laughs) Equal weight, right, exactly, regardless of how many people hold that view or whether the facts support it. Thankfully, the overwhelming majority of coverage and responsible outlets makes very clear that there's nothing to support this. And the coverage now tends to be more along the lines of why do people still think this. Something I have noticed is that for a long time, you had parents who were vaccinating who weren't really speaking out about this. I think you have a much, much higher percentage of parents who vaccinate who are comfortable now speaking out about why this is so important. And you also see not only in the media, but in entertainment and comedy, you see just since the measles outbreaks have occurred, a real shift in how this is discussed with more and more coverage being along the lines of how the hell did we get ourselves in this situation? What in God's name is going on that we still have people who are choosing not to vaccinate? Right. Like you can't imagine the Jimmy Kimmel clip coming out two years ago. I think that's exactly right. One thing that's striking about that is that in some ways it reminds me of how you have this phenomena really in the last four or five years of pediatric practices refusing to accept 
parents who don't vaccinate. You know, if that was going to be a horrible business decision that was going to essentially shutter their practice, I don't think that they would be doing that. So I took the fact that that was happening as indicative of there being more parents who were looking for pediatric practices where they knew their kid wasn't going to get infected with measles in the waiting room. And by the same token, I take Jimmy Kimmel, the fact that he's doing that, I completely believe that's a truly held belief of his. But I also think that he is in some ways reflective of the culture as much as as he is leading it and showing it where it it should go. Well, you know, it's actually a very optimistic perspective. And as an optimist by nature, I like it. Well, Seth, listen, this has really been very interesting. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, no, it's been great talking to you. Once again, this is Paul Sachs from Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And we have been talking with Seth Nukin, who is the author of The Panic Virus. Thanks very much.